This morning we begin the beginning, we begin the beginning. I'm already off on a roll. You may want to take that love offering back. Um, We begin a new series, series of sermons. I have marked out on my calendar that we're going to spend the next nine weeks in this series, um, but we'll see exactly how that goes. We're talking about rebuilding. Um, I was thinking this week about Sunday, March the 8th, 2020. So think back with me, that's somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 months ago, Sunday, March the 8th, 2020. That particular Sunday is ingrained in my memory um, pretty well. On that Sunday, there were 115 people in attendance at our service here at HRCC. And for perspective, that's actually a little light. Uh, The previous Sunday, there had been 145 people in attendance. But on Sunday, March the 8th, we were down to 115. And one of the primary reasons that we were down that particular Sunday is that there was quickly growing concern about the safety of being in large gatherings in light of the coronavirus finally beginning to show itself in this part of the U.S. Uh, And so I know there were a few folks that were starting to feel the sniffles or maybe get a cough or maybe we're just worried that let's let this thing lie for two or three weeks and then I'll come back to worship. But that was Sunday, March the 8th. We didn't know it that day. I certainly didn't know it that day, but that would be the last Sunday that we would all be together for worship because the following Sunday we shut down. And... I was thinking about this week, that this week, 115 people. I don't know exactly who those 115 were. Uh, We do take attendance and do a head count every week, so I know the number's accurate, but I couldn't give you a list of who they were. And while I think HRCC has remained healthy and done well in most regards since then, I think it's unlikely that those exact 115 people are all going to gather in this room exactly the same way ever again. I think we've come too far to assume that we're just going to pick pick up precisely where we we left off. Too much has changed. Uh, Metaphorically, too much has been torn apart. We've got some rebuilding to do. And it's not just us. It's the church throughout America. Uh, By last summer, just a few months into the pandemic, we had data that said nearly one-third of church-going Americans no longer gathered for worship of any kind, either in person or even online. One-third of church-going Americans, just by August, had essentially stopped worshiping in any sort of group, whether in person or remote. They just stopped worshiping. And that number has almost certainly grown since that time. And there are legitimate questions about how many of that huge mass of people will ever return. We've got some rebuilding to do. And it's not just the church. Let's talk for just a moment about our nation. Our nation is deeply divided. Trust and goodwill have eroded. So much has changed this year. We've got a new administration now. Some people are very optimistic about that. Some people are very pessimistic about that. Regardless of your outlook on where we are politically or socially as a nation, regardless of your outlook, we've got some rebuilding to do. And not just our nation. Like, let's keep going here. Let's make it personal. So many of us 
have faced in the last year or so individual trials, many of them complicated or driven by the pandemic, but many of them have nothing to do with the virus. But we faced individual trials. We've been bruised, we've been battered, we're suffering. And I don't think it's too melodramatic to acknowledge that there are pieces of many of our lives that lie in ruin. We've got some rebuilding to do. And it's with those things in mind that I've decided that for the next several weeks, we're going to spend our time just kind of telling the stories. I'm not going to preach through any particular book of the Bible. I'm not even necessarily going to go in chronological order, but I want to tell you some stories about a particular group of rebuilders in the Bible. So let me set this up this way. I'm going to give you the historical background. In the year 587 B.C., So 587 years before what we now call the Common Era, old school we used to say before Christ, right? 587, the last remaining Israelites were living in what at that time was called the Kingdom of Judah, and their capital city was Jerusalem. And in 587, the armies of Babylon, greatest empire in the the known world or that part of the world at that time, Babylon invaded and they began to destroy Jerusalem. Now we can't pinpoint a particular date, 587 is key, but the reality is it took several years for this to happen. And over those next several years, the Israelites that were conquered by Babylon were taken into captivity, which means the Babylonians, and this was consistent with their foreign policy, They conquered places and then took those people and brought them back to Babylon. So in wave after wave after wave, the Israelites were taken from Jerusalem and the surrounding area back to Babylon and they lived in captivity there. For point of reference, Babylon is roughly modern day Iraq. And so for more than 50 years, most Israelites lived as captives in a foreign land. And that meant there was no temple, It meant there were no feasts, no traditions, no religious heritage. And meanwhile, their ancestral homeland was lying in ruin. Now, eventually, the Babylonian Empire actually gave way. The Persians took over and and conquered Babylonia. And they inherited the Israelite captives and captives from all the other places that Babylon had conquered. So the Persians were the new uh, bosses in town. And the Persians, they saw no need to keep the Israelites captive in Babylon. So what they started doing was the opposite. They started releasing the Israelites, not all at once, but in waves, one after another, to return to their homeland. And the Persians gave them this assignment. They said, we are the ruling empire. You're going to be subject to us. But we want you to go back to your homeland. We want you to rebuild your cities. We want you to rebuild your homes. And we want you to rebuild your lives. Begin to worship again as you used to. These people that they released, these are the rebuilders. And the Bible tells their stories in a variety of books in the latter part of the Old Testament. But I want to highlight six remarkable men among the hundreds of thousands that were given this mission to rebuild. So I have a picture. I want to put this this picture up. It's next photo here. It's not a photo. It's a drawing. I commissioned this artwork. This is by Lydia Hosick. Our very own Lydia drew this. Um, Yeah, very cool. I geeked out 100% when I saw this. Lydia and I discussed getting a drawing of these six guys together that I could use throughout this time. We looked together at some of the scripture that described these six guys. 
uh, to kind of imagine what they must have looked like. Now, obviously there were no photographs at the time, records are sketchy, but I don't believe the iPhone had been invented. Um, and the truth is these six guys probably never stood in a group just exactly like this because they kind of ebbed and flowed in different seasons. But these are the six rebuilders that we're gonna talk about. And let me introduce you to these rebuilders. We're gonna go from left to right. On the very left here is, is Zerubbabel. This is Zerubbabel. I'm gonna tell you about Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel's grandfather had been the last king of Judah before the Babylonians invaded. And his grandpa was an evil man. His grandpa was ungodly. The Bible depicts him as, as just a bad king uh, who had abandoned God in every way. The Babylonians conquered Jerusalem and they imprisoned his grandfather. They didn't, didn't just take him into captivity. They threw him into prison. And he spent more than 30 years sitting in a prison in Babylon. In his place, they installed a, a shirt tail relative, kind of a, a great granduncle of Zerubbabel's as their king, but really just to serve as a puppet because Jerusalem was destroyed and nobody lived there. Uh, Zerubbabel, that name is not an Israelite name. It's actually a Babylonian name. It means the seed of Babylon. So we presume that he was born in Babylon, that he was born in captivity. He's never been to Jerusalem before, despite the fact that his family was the kings of, of, of Judah. So Zerubbabel is the rightful heir to the throne, but he's never lived like a prince. He's never lived the life of royalty. Now we don't know where or when or why or how, but apparently at some point Zerubbabel became a faithful follower of God. So he wasn't like his grandpa. He wasn't like, frankly, most of the kings before him. Now, when the Persians came into power and began to release the Jewish captives, they recognized Zerubbabel's birthright. And so they couldn't make him king again. They didn't want a king. This was going to be, you know, a subsidiary of the empire. But they did approach Zerubbabel and install him as what they called the governor of Judah. So he became the governor of Judah. He went back to Jerusalem and his job was to oversee the building project which Persia was actually going to fund as long as he remained loyal to them and to the empire. Let me tell you about the next rebuilder. He's standing right next to Zerubbabel. His name is Joshua. This is not Joshua in the Battle of Jericho. This is a different Joshua. This Joshua was the high priest who returned with Zerubbabel and specifically to oversee the rebuilding of the temple. If you look at the clothes he's wearing, these are reminiscent or they're based on the Old Testament description of what the high priest would wear. There's only one high priest and he had very specific garments that he would wear while on duty. Joshua was the high priest, but like Zerubbabel, he almost certainly had been born in captivity. And that means while in captivity, the high priest didn't really have a job to do. There wasn't, he couldn't do the things that the high priest was supposed to do. The high priest's job was to minister at the temple. There was no temple. They were in captivity. So Joshua and whoever may have preceded him was not able to actually function as the high priest, probably for a couple of generations. So Joshua has been called to this position of high priest with the added responsibility of overseeing a rebuilding project. But he has no experience of his own, and there's not even anyone from whom he can learn about the job because it hasn't been done in a couple of generations. There's nobody he can sit down with and say, well, how did, how did this work when you had the job? That generation is gone. 
Joshua's got to figure it out on the job. Let's keep moving. Haggai, the prophet Haggai. You might recognize that name. He wrote a book of prophecy in the Old Testament. Now, Haggai, as you can tell in the scripture, or in the picture, is probably, we don't know for sure, but he's likely older than Zerubbabel and Joshua. Maybe there's a few hints in the text that maybe he was even old enough to remember what Jerusalem had looked like before the Babylonians destroyed it completely. Now, Haggai appears on the scene as a rebuilder about 15 years after Zerubbabel and Joshua. We don't know, was he already in Jerusalem at that time, or is that just the moment when he showed up from Babylon? We don't really know. But in any case, when he appears on the scene, he arrives to find that the work, the rebuilding, has stalled. The temple got started, but it never really got built. The people are no longer motivated, and Zerubbabel and Joshua are discouraged. So Haggai begins to prophesy. Let me just quickly remind you, we've talked about this before. When we say prophesy, we don't mean tell the future. Prophesy means speak on God's behalf. Haggai, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, begins to speak on God's behalf. His words are stern, because the job hasn't gotten done. But they're loving. He motivates the people to return to the work of the building, the rebuilding. And he also affirms that Zerubbabel and Joshua, even though the work hasn't gotten done yet, they're the right guys for the job. He affirms them. You can see he's got his hand on Joshua's shoulder. He's kind of an encourager here. He says, these are the right guys. They are not failures. They are the men that God has chosen to lead the rebuilding effort. Haggai is kind of interesting because his ministry only lasts a couple of months. He appears on the scene and he, he works for a couple of months. He dates all of his prophecies so we know exactly when it happened. And then he kind of disappears. His primary objective is just to inject divine life into a mission that had waned and grown lifeless. Let's keep moving. Let me introduce Zechariah. Zechariah is a prophet like Haggai. He's almost certainly much younger than Haggai is. He's stirred by the situation, just like Haggai is. Perhaps he was even inspired by Haggai's willingness to finally stand up and get involved. In any case, Zechariah begins to follow in Haggai's footsteps. Several weeks after Haggai begins to prophesy, God gives Zechariah eight visions in one night. One night he has eight divine visions, and those eight dreams form the basis of his prophecies. Zechariah becomes a great cheerleader for the rebuilding efforts. Do you see his big smile and his thumbs up? I love the way Lydia drew Zechariah. He's the cheerleader of the rebuilding efforts. He continues to encourage Zerubbabel, encourage Joshua, encourage all the rebuilders until their projects are brought to completion. Let's keep moving. I want to introduce Ezra. Now, Ezra returned to Jerusalem about 75 years after the first four rebuilders. So we don't know for sure if they were still around, if they crossed paths, what that must have been like. But his job was to kind of pick up where the last generation had left off. Ezra was a priest like Joshua, but he wasn't the high priest. So he doesn't have all the garb that Joshua has. Ezra actually made his living as a scribe and a scholar. He was a historian. He was a librarian. He was the keeper of the records. He was a nerd. You can see that he has the scrolls in his arms. Ezra is sent by the Persians. They actually commissioned him and said, Ezra, we need you to go back now. He's commissioned by the Persians to go back to Jerusalem with this specific job. He's going to teach the Israelites how to read the scriptures and follow what they say. Remember, the last generation that had lived in Jerusalem was not a godly generation. 
And so the Israelites now are moving back, but they're kind of not sure how to do the whole God thing. And so Ezra, as a scribe and a priest, is going to go back and teach them. The Persians wanted that to happen. Apparently, the Persians thought that a God-fearing Israelite nation would be a, a peaceful Israelite nation. It would be a nation that wouldn't cause them any trouble. So they tell Ezra, go back, teach them the law, teach them their old traditions, reintroduce them to what a godly lifestyle looks like. And so Ezra wasn't so much a physical rebuilder as he was a rebuilder of their culture. Here's our last rebuilder. It's Nehemiah. Of the six rebuilders, Nehemiah was the last one to arrive. He arrives a few years after Ezra. He probably had the best life in Persia. Despite being, he is devoutly religious. He's an ethnic Jew and he's a very God-fearing, observant man but he was also connected in the Persian Empire. He was the cupbearer to the king of Persia, which is in its essence a, a servant's position, but it's a really important servant's position. We would think of it as he was an officer in the cabinet. He had access to the king. He was an advisor to the king. He knows how to leverage his connections to get things done. He's very influential. You can see in Lydia's drawing, he's still holding his cup. He knows, he's on a first name basis with some of the officers in the Persian Empire. He knows how to wield the influence of the emperor to get what he wants, what he needs, and he knows how to motivate workers. His primary concern is that Jerusalem, though partially rebuilt in his day, is still vulnerable to attack from the outside. So Nehemiah actually volunteers he volunteers to leave his post in the cabinet and go back in order to rebuild the defensive walls around the city. Those are six rebuilders. We're going to talk a lot about them over the course of the next few weeks, but let me say this about that. I want to believe that every one of us at HRCC can find ourselves somewhere in this picture because I believe that God has called this church in this time to be a church of rebuilders. And perhaps there's a specific character you can identify with. More likely, there's a composite of characteristics that will feel familiar to you. In either case, I invite you to listen closely to what the Holy Spirit has to say to us as he calls out to a new generation of rebuilders. Listen to what he wants to tell us. Stories of these men demonstrate that rebuilders aren't bound by the past. Rebuilders aren't bound by the past. Let's look in just a, a moment at the story of Haggai. Most prophets include their biography in their writings. At the beginning of a book of prophecy in the Old Testament, you'll, you'll read, this is the prophecy of so-and-so, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so. I was working here and doing this when the Lord called out to me. It's common for the prophets to include their genealogy or their credentials. Elisha, we know, for instance, trained as a young man on how to become a prophet. Samuel was still a little boy when he first started to hear from the Lord. Jeremiah famously writes that he heard God's voice calling out to him in utero. He hadn't even been born yet, and God was always already preparing him for a life of prophecy. But not so for Haggai. We know nothing about his family history. We know nothing about his personal background. It seems likely that he's already advanced in years before the Bible even mentions him. And then his prophecy just starts, just right out of nowhere. Read to you Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. This is the first words we have from Haggai. He says, in the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. That's it. 
No background, no history, no story, no credentials. All he does, and this is kind of cool, he gives us the exact day it happened. If you want to geek out on this with me, we know how the ancient Persian calendar worked. So when he talks about what was it, the first day of the sixth month of the second year, August 29th, 520 BC. Isn't that cool? Mark it on your calendars. August 29th, 520 BC, Haggai heard the word of the Lord. As best we can tell, nothing before that. Now, I don't mean to make an argument from silence. I get there's a lot to speculate about here. But it appears that one day, just one day, the Spirit of God moved upon the heart of an older man to encourage two younger men about a project that they had begun to give up on. There was nothing terribly remarkable about that man prior to that moment. Certainly nothing that elevates him to the level of of being talked about in the Bible. But because Haggai had the heart of a rebuilder, he was not bound by his past experience. He didn't refuse to become a rebuilder now just because he had never been one before. Let me tell you about one of the other guys. Let's talk about the guy he spoke to. Let's talk about Zerubbabel. Remember I told you Zerubbabel's grandpa had been the king, but he wasn't a good king. He wasn't a godly king. There's this story about back when Zerubbabel's grandpa was the king, the prophet who was causing trouble for ungodly kings back in those days was the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah used to have it in with Zerubbabel's grandpa all the time. Prophet Jeremiah was active in those days. He used to yell at him because he had abandoned God. Kings were supposed to be God's instrument, but Zerubbabel's grandpa had completely abandoned that part of the job. And so there's this famous line in Jeremiah's prophecy where he goes up to Zerubbabel's grandpa and he says, you know, you think you're something, don't you? You think you're something because you're the king. You think you're blessed by God and anointed by God because you're the king. But here's the truth. Here's what God has to say to you. God is telling you, grandpas of Zerubbabel, he had his own name, but God is telling you, God says, even if you were my signet ring, I would throw you away. Signet ring is that pinky ring that they would use, you know, to emboss an edict or or put their stamp on something. And God's saying, even if you were something to me, the way you've behaved, I would throw you away. Now, I have to believe that those words echoed in the ears of that family as the kingdom came crumbling down around them, right? I have to believe that Zerubbabel grew up in captivity knowing that story. Maybe he was even taunted about it. Maybe maybe he was reminded of it in a way that he didn't want to be reminded of it. That was his legacy. His legacy was that of God has said to you and your people, even if you were my ring, I would throw you away. And then Haggai speaks to Zerubbabel about the mission of rebuilding. Haggai chapter 2, verse 23, on that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, and I will make you like my signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. There's the signet ring. Coincidence? I think not. Twice the Bible mentions kings being like signet rings. Once, Zerubbabel's grandpa, God says, I'm going to chuck you out. You're garbage. And the second time, it's God speaking to Zerubbabel saying, I'm going to put you on. That's how precious you are to me. I have chosen you. 
Zerubbabel is not bound by the past. He is not defined by his family's mistakes. And he's not even defined by his own. Remember, at this point, the project had been going on for 15 years, and he hadn't been able to get it done. And the word of the Lord comes to him and says, I have chosen you. Don't be bound by the mistakes you've made in the past. That's not how rebuilders work. You know what else? Rebuilders are driven by compassion. Zechariah. You remember Zechariah? I love Zechariah. Delegation of Israelites came to Zechariah at some point in the rebuilding process. They came to ask him if he thought it would be a good idea to fast twice a year in order to avoid God's anger. They had heard that people used to fast in month five and month seven, and they were thinking maybe... Maybe if we're going to rebuild this thing and do it right, we need to fast in month five and month seven. I know, let's go, let's go ask Zechariah what he thinks. He's a godly man. So they come and they ask him, hey, Zechariah, we were thinking it might be a good idea to fast in month five and it might be a good idea to fast in month seven. That would certainly curry God's favor, don't you think? And look at what Zechariah says to them in response. Seventh chapter of his prophecy, beginning in verse eight, it says, the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. In other words, could we have the revised Dan version translation of that? He's saying, how about instead of focusing on religious rights, if you want to rebuild, try paying attention to how you're actually treating one another. Rebuilders are always thinking about the heart. Come on, is that a word for America today? How about instead of focusing on the laws and the rules and who's doing this and who's doing that, how about instead of all of that, y'all start treating each other like the children of God you say you are? How about we start there? And then we talk about fast slave. Because a rebuilder's heart isn't motivated by what power whomever has. It's motivated, motivated by compassion. Let's consider Nehemiah. Nehemiah looks like a tough guy, doesn't he? He looks like a tough guy. And I think Nehemiah probably was a tough guy. Remember, he's the one who has connections. He knows how to leverage relationships and influence. He's hard-nosed. He's a job site foreman if ever there was one. But notice how his story begins. While he is still in Persia, he gets a visit from Jerusalem, from some family members and some friends who have been back to Jerusalem. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3, Nehemiah records, they said to me, you know, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And Nehemiah says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah answers the call to rebuild, not because he's a tough guy, not because he can leverage the relationship he has with the emperor, not because he wants to be great and wants to be famous as the guy who finally finished the project. Nehemiah answers the call to rebuild because he was moved by compassion. He said, my brothers are in trouble. My brothers are in trouble and I think I can help. I love the way Lydia imagined these different characters because when I looked at them, I, like this point just leapt out to me. Rebuilders might not look the part, right? 
Like if this was, you know, you were going to rebuild a city, is this the crew you would pick to lead the project? They don't, they don't always look the part. You might think that if the job was a literal rebuilding project, as, as was the case in Jerusalem, like we're talking about laying brick here, right? Your rebuilders should be construction workers. They should be laborers. They should be teamsters, right? Not so. Ezra. Come on, Ezra. Look how he describes himself. Ezra chapter 7, verse 6. It says, Ezra was a teacher, well-versed in the law of Moses. Well, give him the heavy bricks. Verse 10. Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and its laws in Israel. How that qualified him to mix mortar, I have no idea. He doesn't look the part. But his role is, as a rebuilder is essential. The job doesn't get done without Ezra. Or consider Joshua, the high priest. Remember I told you about Joshua. Nobody had served as he did. Nobody had the job he had in two generations. How's he going to do it? How odd must it have been? I, I don't know if this is actually how this worked, but it's just kind of how I picture it in my imagination. Like, he's got to get the uniform out of storage. Like, hey, Joshua, guess what? We're going to need a high priest again. Where did we put that uniform? Whose footlocker is that in? We got to find it. He's got to get it out of storage. Lydia drew it. You can see it's worn. It's tattered. It's missing some of the tassels at the bottom. He's got some holes in the elbows. Like, it hasn't been used in a while. Don't you suppose he looked out of place? Zechariah had a dream about Joshua. And in Zechariah's dream, Joshua was standing in these tattered robes and Satan was lobbing accusations against Joshua. You're not good enough. You're not the right guy for this job. You can't do it. You can't. Satan's lobbing these accusations against Joshua. And Joshua's standing in these tattered, filthy priest garments. Look what Zechariah writes about his dream. Chapter 3, verse 3. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Right? So he sees Joshua, but now Joshua is getting a makeover. The angel says, stop listening to Satan. Take off his filthy clothes. And then the angel said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. This is my favorite part. We haven't even gotten to my favorite part yet. This is my favorite part. Do you remember who's having this vision? Zechariah is having this vision. He's seeing this happen. And Joshua's getting new clothes and Zechariah gets so excited. He starts yelling out in his own vision. In his own vision, he's seeing all this happen. And then all of a sudden, Zachariah says, Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. <laughs> yes! Put a clean turban on his head. He like can't even contain. I picture God going like, Zechariah, we're trying to have a vision here. Stop interrupting. So they put a clean turban on his head and they clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. It doesn't matter if we look the part. Doesn't matter if we look the part or not. When God calls us to rebuild, God transforms us so that we can accomplish what he has given us to do. And this is how we do it. This is how we do it. Rebuilders rely on God's strength. Ezra put this principle to the test when he started his journey from Persia to Jerusalem. Chapter 8 of his book, he writes, now this is while he was still in Persia, just planning the trip back home. He had a bunch of people with him. The Persians are going to send him on his way. Look what he writes. 
I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road. Because we had already told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him. But his great anger is against all who forsake him. In other words, Ezra's life, I realized how much we had been bragging about God's power and strength. I couldn't very well say, um, so could we have some security guards? So he says, so this is what we did. We fasted and we petitioned our God about this. And he answered our prayer. God was as good as his word. You can't very well tell everybody that God is strong enough to protect you and then ask them to supply a bodyguard. Ezra believed, he trusted, and he ultimately relied on God's strength rather than the emperor's strength. But here's a much better story. A much better story. This is my favorite story, so I saved it for last. It's the most famous example of this principle, and it brings us back to Zerubbabel. So remember Zerubbabel, his rebuilding project had gone off the rails. They didn't have immediate success. In fact, he and Joshua had essentially suspended the project. Sounds like a, a Chicago Public Works kind of a situation, right? <laughs> they had just suspended it. We don't know what we're going to do. It's indefinitely on hold. And then Haggai and Zechariah arrived. And then Zechariah has all these dreams, right? And in one of these dreams, God shows him an oil lamp. And the oil lamp is fed by a bowl full of oil, right? Are we picturing lamps in the ancient world? The oil was the fuel, like a kerosene style lamp. The lamp is, is a flame burning and it's fed by this bowl full of oil, full of fuel, so that the lamp can stay lit. And that bowl full of oil is itself connected by pipes. It's a dream about plumbing, right? Can I get an amen from Jim Cahill? It's a dream about plumbing. The bowl is connected by pipes to two olive trees. So the trees themselves are producing the olives, which are producing the oil, which flows through the pipes into this bowl, which never runs empty and feeds the lamp so that the lamp is always burning. And God tells Zechariah in this dream, do you see what's going on here? And Zechariah is like, no, I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know what this is. God says to Zechariah, this is a metaphor that I want you to share with Zerubbabel. Because what Zerubbabel is going through right now is the question, how am I supposed to find the strength to restart this rebuilding project and bring it to completion? I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. How am I going to do it now? In Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, the Lord tells Zechariah this. You may know this verse by heart, but maybe you didn't know it was from this story. The Lord said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Not by might, not by power, but it's by my spirit that this is going to get done. I think some of us needed to be reminded of that today. We're looking at the wreckage around us. And we're wondering how and where are we going to find the strength or the skill to rebuild? Listen to what God says. If I've called you, then you're going to do this. If I've called you, then you're going to do this. But you're not going to do it because of your own skill. 
And you're not going to do it because of your own intellect. You're not going to do it out of your own strength. And you're not going to do it out of the force of your own will. Those efforts can only fail. No, beloved. That's not how this is going to happen. Surrender yourself. Surrender yourself, rebuilder, in humble submission to my spirit, says the Lord. For he alone, he's the only one that can lead, that can equip, that can empower. He's the only one that can rebuild. And then close your Bible on on those verses. And let's mentally skip ahead. Pick up your communion cup. This is a model of what rebuilding in the power of the Spirit looks like. This, This silly little cup that we have complained about every time we've used it, right? I had in mind that this time I was going to pre-peel the top layer, which my big old sausage thumbs can never get at when they need to. I love that I struggle with this. Like seriously, I love that I struggle with this because communion's not supposed to be easy, right? This isn't about snack time at Jesus camp. This is a reminder of what it looks like to sacrifice and surrender, is it not? This is a message that says, you know, I called you. I've been calling you for centuries, says the Lord. I have been commissioning rebuilders forever. But one day, I gave you a model of what that actually looks like. So remember the principles here. Forget about your own strength or your own power. Respond with compassion to people in need. Don't worry about whether or not you look like what everybody else expects and rely entirely on the power of the Spirit. Could we use those phrases to describe Jesus? Think about the ministry of Jesus. Forget about your own strength or power. The Bible says he emptied himself of the prerogative that came with being God's son. He made himself nothing. Forget about your own strength or power. Respond with compassion to a people in need. This is, this is the Savior who wept as he approached Jerusalem. He said, they're like a, a flock with no shepherd. Respond with compassion to people in need. Don't worry about whether or not you look like what everybody expects. Come on now. Was this the Messiah that we had been promised? Jesus said, no, I'm doing a different thing. You didn't know to expect this. And rely entirely on the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how his ministry was accomplished. Rely entirely on the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, the rebuilder, our rebuilder. The ultimate rebuilder. Find a people, he said. The pinnacle of your your father's created world. A people conceived in perfection, but now broken in sin. Find them, rebuild, renew, and redeem. So with that in mind, I invite you to take the bread and recall that our Redeemer 
our restorer, our rebuilder, on the night he was rebuilding, was preparing to lay his life down. And he said, this is my body, and I've broken it for you. Will you receive it, and every day that you do so, will you remember that this is what it looks like to rebuild? Let's receive it together. And when the meal had ended, he took the cup. Likewise, he gave thanks. And he said to rebuild is to be a new creation. And so there's a new covenant. There's a new way. Every time you drink this cup, will you remember that you are new? That you are different? That I have rebuilt you? Will you do that every time you drink this cup? Let's respond and receive. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the ministry you have called us to now as a ministry that we have received from you. What you ask of us, you have modeled for us. What you have given to us, you implore us to now use in the task that lies in front of us. We are created in the image of the great builder. And so we today acknowledge and accept the call to rebuild. Rebuild. Father, may it begin with us in this place. I pray, Lord, over those lives that are broken over those that feel that they walk among the scattered, scattered ruins and broken pieces, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would rebuild in us. I pray that we would receive and that we would see, that we would recognize that which you are accomplishing as you lay brick upon brick, as you put pieces back together and seal them with your spirit such that they will not be broken again. I pray, Lord, that we would receive this ministry of rebuilding. I pray, Lord, that you will shatter the chains that bind us, that keep us from proceeding in the power and the anointing that you have declared over us. It doesn't matter that Grandpa left you. It doesn't matter that I failed you. Your anointing is upon us right now. You are saying, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. Father, help us to hear that affirmation today as you commission us to rebuild. Father, I thank you that you have called what the New Testament sometimes says is a peculiar people. We don't look the part. The world is looking to movers and shakers and power brokers and chiefs and captains of industry and politics to fix what is broken. But you have raised a peculiar people and you have said, this is where my spirit lives and this is where my name is and this, my church, is the hope of the world. Thank you for doing a new thing here. 
And Father, we receive together today, church, I want to invite you, even if you will, just to raise your hands and receive the anointing of the Holy Spirit of God, which calls and commissions rebuilders. We receive, Lord, your word for us today, Lord. We find ourselves awash in the power and the presence of your spirit as you accomplish your work in our lives today. May it be for the sake of your great kingdom. And in the name of our Savior Jesus, we pray it. And everybody says, Amen. Amen. Go, be blessed, rebuild, and we'll be here together to worship next Sunday. Take one more step.